This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Catherine Nichols here with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week our year is 1925, and our book is The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. I don't know if it's necessary to summarize this book. I assume most listeners have read it at some point, but just in case you'd like a refresher, or maybe it slipped past you. Uh, the book is narrated by Nick Carraway, who is a Midwesterner living on Long Island, um, and he tells a story of befriending his neighbor, Jay Gatsby, who is this enormously rich man who got his money, it sort of hinted heavily, through organized crime. Um, he throws these magnificent parties, and it turns out that the purpose of the parties is to entice his first love, Daisy, to come back to him. Um, however, Daisy is married to this really unpleasant rich man called Tom Buchanan. He's abusive, racist, and he's cheating on her with a woman called Myrtle. Um, Gatsby wants to relive his past romance with Daisy from when they were young. Um, She does have an affair with Gatsby, but she doesn't leave Tom for him. Uh, At one point, she's driving in Gatsby's car, and she hits and kills Myrtle. Um, And Gatsby takes responsibility and says that it was, you know, that uh, that he was driving, not Daisy, um, to protect her. But Myrtle's husband finds Gatsby, believing that Gatsby is the one who killed Myrtle. Um, So Myrtle's husband kills Gatsby. Um, He he shoots him while Gatsby's in a swimming pool. So he dies in the swimming pool, and uh, then Nick goes to Gatsby's funeral and meets Gatsby's father. But none of all the party friends or the organized crime friends or anyone, Daisy, Tom, none of those people go to the funeral or appear to care that Gatsby died sort of one of the great texts of American identity. Anyway, we'll talk about it. We'll see. We'll talk about it. Here we go. Sandy, when you suggested that we should do an episode on the Great Gatsby, I, I actually almost, uh, I was thinking, like, does Lit Century do the Great Gatsby? It seems like... <laughs> it's so basic. It seems so basic, yeah. And I mean, I love doing, like, I think that some of my favorite episodes are things that we did on basic books. And then when I actually reread it, I just was shocked by what I found. Which, I mean, I usually, when I say I was shocked by what I found in a book, it's usually about a book that I had had some mental image of, um, but I hadn't actually read it. But I'd read this, and it was... A very, very familiar text, very familiar story, and I was still shocked by it. 
but you recommended it because you said you've, te- you've taught it many times. And I'm really curious about what you say when you're teaching it and what your students see in it. Well, I think teaching it is like mostly I teach it because it is the perfect novel vis-a-vis structure. You know, you can, you can look at it and it's like one of the ways that it's interesting is how he turns the whole novel into a pattern with these repeating motifs and, you know, everything is a symbol that meshes perfectly with everything else. So that it's like this little clockwork machine. Um, And yet it's also incredibly messy. You know, there's like, there's this emotional and thematic messiness to it, which I think we'll get into where he's not in control of his material as soon as you probe beyond that pattern. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. I I have in my notes, I have a section that says, is this actually profound? Question mark with a list (laughs) of things where I was like, I actually can't tell. Yeah. some of the things that, that he sort of sets up as these big... And other times he's trying to be profound and it's just silly. Exactly. Um, so one of the things that... It, it, are you okay if I move to... Yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, this is just the, the nature of reading when you're older versus younger is that I could see it in the context of different uh, other works because I just read more. Um, and... I had been prese- I had been told about it as this like quintessentially American novel, and then reading it this time, I was thinking, it's like a Jeeves and Worcester story. It's like a Woodhouse story, <laughs> but not funny, you know. But the idea that there's like these two characters, one of them is watching the other one, and there's like a mystery, and there's love hijinks, and there's people trying to set up the perfect opportunity to give a flower to the girl and it's ruined and it doesn't work out right and um, misunderstandings and car crashes and fascists and I was like this is all stuff that would happen in a Jeeves and Worcester story and it has that kind of flimsiness and silliness to it in a way and lightness of of consequence and then he's also saying but none of those things are funny all of those things are actually profound and some of them are I think, and some of them just seemed not actually as serious as he's setting them up to be. And the, there, there isn't like a tonal difference that suggests that he knows that. And I think that that's what you mean by um, him not really being in control of his material. Well, yeah, I mean, we should say that, that most great novels are characterized by the author not being in control of their best material. So it's not, it's not like this is a flaw. It's just. that's No, but I agree with you that it's like, I remembered it as being a much more tightly written puzzle box because of all of the symbolism. So I was looking at Jeeves and Worcester stories and reading up on those. And also there were some other ones from the same era or sort of about the same era, even if they're published later, that have the same setup of two characters. One of them is trying to sort of penetrate the mind of the other. And that's like, uh, sorry, I have a list here. There's uh, Brideshead Revisited, which was published in 1945, but starts being about the 1920s, I think. And um, The Pursuit of Love, the Nancy Mitford one. And apparently all of these were inspired by Sherlock Holmes. Hmm. 
so the that setup of having the it's like the way that the great gatsby feels like a mystery story where somehow nick is witnessing this situation like a detective trying to but also the mystery is like gatsby's mind does that make sense like it's the way that the relationship between watson and sherlock holmes or worcester and jeeves is somewhat echoed in this relationship between Nick and uh, Gatsby. And there are much more explicitly gay versions of this. And this book, you know, depends on how you read it, but it's, I don't think it's like reading into the text much to say that, that it's pretty gay, <laughs> but it's usually like a same sex fascination, right? In the, these stories. But I was just interested in how English these stories are. Right for something that seems like so quintessentially American, I was like, "This is a, a whole trope package that has been imported from England," which I think is that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't really, I never picked up on that, but that's really true, and it's it seems to be part and parcel of F. Scott Fitzgerald's general aspirationalism to to use a British form to talk about American society. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that it's one of the big tensions inside this book that Gatsby does want to take on, you know, he wants to be an Oxford man. He wants to um, have uh, people in his life who are from all over society and all different segments of society. But he also lives in a very classed society. Yeah. Where I think Nick does not want to live in a class society. Nick has like the sort of Midwesterner, honest Abe. I treat every man the same. I'm slightly reading into his character, what he is saying about himself or how he wants to be seen. Yeah, he's very much like a white person saying I'm colorblind in those sections. You know, you don't really believe him. Well, yes. And I think there's a lot of ways that you can see Nick as a unreliable narrator yeah um especially for how much he brags about not being judgmental and then is extremely judgmental the idea that Gatsby is this very American figure of American striving but also American sort of social mobility and moving among different groups of people freely but then I think there's another version of Americanism that I had almost completely forgotten about because I think that people almost entirely stop talking about the frontier and the West, but it was such a thing. It used to be such a thing that everyone, it was like a way of talking about race with only white people <laughs> talk about the American West. Right. And there's this little part toward the end of the great Gatsby where he's, Nick Carraway is like, Oh, well for a couple of, you know, men of the West, like me and Gatsby, um, the basically sinful East Coast cities are going to chew us up and spit us out no matter what. Yes, it's it's sort of reminiscent of how very privileged people to this day get resentful of if they didn't go to an Ivy League college and they feel completely, you know, justified to have a chip on their shoulder about not about the Ivy League people who will chew you up and spit you out. I, I made a whole list of things of like sub tropes 
that I think are attached to this idea because I couldn't believe how much it had been erased from my mind, how much people even in the 90s, how much people still talked about the idea of the West and the frontier, which I don't think people even use the word frontier anymore, not without strong side-eye, right? Well, it's, I mean, the frontier is a way of referring casually to a you know, a great dispossession and genocide, and we're all unaware of that now, we hope. I think that that's exactly, that that is centered in the conversation a lot more than it was yeah. certainly in the time that this was published. But I was thinking like um, the Baz Luhrmann movie of The Great Gatsby casts Nick as this kind of um, like unsophisticated hick, right? Have you seen any of this movie? <laughs> seen that movie now i've seen some clips of it i haven't seen the whole thing sorry listeners didn't do, my, <laughs> didn't do my work on that i saw enough of it to understand that that the movie cast him as being like less sophisticated than someone like jordan baker that he's like wearing a bow tie and a tweed jacket and kind of isn't like of the same group as these um sophisticated rich new yorkers um I don't think that that's the contrast that Fitzgerald is trying to draw. I think he's trying to draw the contrast between the idea of purity in the West that has to do with individualism and it has to do with white people being white on lots of land. And it's sort of like all of the honest Abe. This is like the best, the best I could think of for like a trope engine the idea that uh, Abraham Lincoln would walk 10 miles or whatever to give back two pennies. <laughs> Just, I, I think that all of the tropes around the idea that, that Abraham Lincoln basically built the cabin that he was born in and all of those things that he supposedly <laughs> did to show his extreme honesty and his extreme refusal to see class or to differentiate between different people's worth based on class while also enacting a massive land grab and genocide. Yes. So yeah. it's like a white people only vision of purity to do with, uh, we're all landowners out here. We all work, we all cut down trees and we all treat each other more or less fairly on the frontier. And it's not the same as the city where the class system is entrenched and there's different kinds of people like Jewish people, for example. Um, but the being in that group that is both class stratified and also has different people of different ethnicity that you might have to talk to, but that is, that makes you less pure. Yeah. I mean, like not to get, not to get too focused on this one thing, so, because the, one of the interesting things about Gatsby is that when you when you start to focus on a trope, it starts to disintegrate because he has, I mean, it's impossible to tell like how conscious he was of all of the stuff that was going on in this book, because he does seem to see that that Nick is um, is subtly dishonest, is not actually like as we said a reliable narrator, and so at the end. 
and and also it, it should be said that Daisy is from the same place that that Nick is from. So she also should be a figure of the West, but she is at the end one of the bad rich people of the East. So I think that uh, I have a, a little subheading in my in my notes that is labeled misogyny. So <laughs> yeah, the misogyny is is pretty. There's kind of a lot. There's there's, there's more than I remembered. And as often happens, like in in books of this period, the misogyny becomes such a such a part of the machine that you're sort of like, well, you know, is he just using misogyny or is he expressing misogyny? Like, what what is this all about? But obviously, you can't use misogyny without expressing misogyny. So, yeah. Well, one little sub element of it that I thought was interesting um, was the. The idea of going to war, which is World War One, and that these people like Gatsby and uh, all of them, really all of the men, have an opportunity to kind of see outside the world that they were born into, mm-hmm. and to change their identity slightly, um, and more than slightly in Gatsby's case, and but that that gives them another way to be misogynist, because. Uh, there's this um, this line that I, I took a note on. Um, For Daisy was young and her artificial world was redolent of orchids and pleasant, cheerful snobbery orchestras that set up the rhythm of the year. Um, why is her world artificial? Like, why does Nick think he knows more about the world than Daisy does other than misogyny? But it's not just misogyny because it's misogyny plus he's been a soldier and he has actually seen more parts of the world. Yeah. And I, th- I think I know we've had a conversation about this. I'm not sure if we did it on Lit Century or just in in person as a, as a private conversation, but how the, the First World War was the war in which people first defined war as the truth. And the home front as <clears throat> this sort of yeah. lies as illusion, and there, and obviously with regard to the war, there was truth to that because in the home front they were like, promoting the war as this grand patri- patriotic endeavor, when in fact it was just a, a meaningless um, mass death. But does that mean that the war is real life? You know, <laughs> it's it's. Yeah. Kind of, but but it was framed that way, and and men came back from the war with this feeling, this hard earned feeling of of moral superiority and greater understanding of reality, um, and that became a great engine for, or, or it set the terms for the misogyny of the next fifty years. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> While I was thinking about stuff that I now know fits into the pattern of this book, into its sort of literary context, I thought about Booth Booth Tarkington also, and I was so pleased with myself for figuring this one out because when I actually looked at Booth Tarkington's uh, Wikipedia page, it said that uh, it actually mentioned F. Scott Fitzgerald as somebody whose life was very similar and who can be sort of used in comparison, like Booth Tarkington, his star fell very quickly, but he had been enormously successful as a novelist. And now I think he's primarily read as like the the Magnificent Ambersons, I think is the main thing. And that's usually like the Orson Welles movie is the main way people 
encounter that, but he's also a Midwestern author. The the reason that I thought of him originally was the amount of distrust in cars and pleasure and progress mm-hmm. in The Magnificent Ambersons. And I was thinking, like, why, why is it that the cars have to crash? Why do you have a car and it has to crash? Like, yeah, why do you have a swimming pool and you will inevitably end up floating in it with blood pooling around you? And swimming pools were so new because chlorinated water was so new. I mean, I'm sure they're swimming pools, whatever. Swimming pools existed, but swimming pools as a um, a glamorous visual with the blue, clear water, which like what you want is for blood to get into it. It's the first thing you want. It's like the train in Anna Karenina. It's like you have a train. Well, it's got to kill someone beautiful. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and that that feeling that, that the thing that must happen is, oh, are you going to set up a, a website? Well, it's going to kill someone. You know, <laughs> we only have uh, probably a year or two before there's a story about podcasts killing someone. Maybe podcasts already do kill people, actually. Like the true crime. I don't know. Um, that anything new that people enjoy also has to lead to their doom. That seems like the more I thought about the this kind of distrust of social mobility and pleasure and uh, well, any kind of mobility, actually, if you include cars and progress. I think that there is a feeling of sin about it. Like what exactly is Gatsby being punished for? It's all very, Gatsby is obviously, as everybody says, a figure of the American dream. Um, <clears throat> you know, his, his backstory, like, more or less explicitly based on Horatio Alger novels about the the boy who is adopted by an older man and you know becomes <clears throat> rich in the same mold but a, a corrupt version where the implication is that he ultimately makes his money through organized crime so so all that is going on but it's it's sort of like Fitzgerald is kind of disavowing responsibility for the narrative that he's created about what the American dream is. And he's not acknowledging, as people often don't when they they created an aesthetic political idea, he's not acknowledging that this is actually his invention and it is not the norm for people to make their money via organized crime in order to get the woman that who rejected them because they were poor, if you see what I mean, you know. Yeah, quite an extreme vision of what the American, an extreme and idiosyncratic vision of what the American dream is. And yet somehow it rings true for us because we've been told so many times that that to not be of the right social class is a kind of original sin, that we just accept that you will be punished for it. We've been told so many times that adopting technology and enjoying it and enjoying, you know, the the ability to drive a car as as a private citizen is somehow an original sin. Although now it's, it is, it is as you point out, more the internet. Being on the internet obviously can't end well, and it can't be a good thing. It, it has to somehow lead to our doom that we have friends online instead of in real life. Yeah. I, um, I, that idea of purity is actually often in the book associated with Gatsby, 
like what he has before he kisses uh, Daisy and when he, he could like romp with the mind of God. And I was like, what is this? Is this a real thing? Is, is, um, and like his, his obsession with the idea that he could repeat the past. I was like, is this something that connects to the world in some way? Do people actually think this? Because again, there's so many ways that this is just, um, we're told so many times, like this is about the American dream. And I'm like, is the American dream about repeating the past? Yeah, and he's trying to, I mean, it's it's interesting because Fitzgerald does seem to be saying, he's constructing this figure for how the American dream is an illusion in the first place, is about an idea of purity that is based on misconstruing your first girlfriend. Um, and and finally can only be achieved by people who are comprehensively corrupt and then they're sorry. So, so he's he's coming at this idea of the American dream in every possible way that you can. But in order to do it, he creates this figure like Gatsby, the cipher who actually has no real human characteristics. Well, and the, the conflict over the idea that Daisy has to say that she never loved Tom in order to complete some circle of, of perfection for Gatsby. And as I was reading it, I was thinking this makes plot sense because it makes emotional sense somehow, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't actually make any sense sense. You know, like, Clearly, everyone is very invested in this idea that Daisy is either going to say that she um, only ever loved Gatsby or she didn't. But it doesn't, it's like, how is that actually meaningful? What is at stake in that scene? The idea that she would have loved Tom would make her less venal, you'd think, and less money driven. It's sort of interesting because looking at it from the point of view of the reader, like we're we're really conflicted about it too, because Tom is, as soon as we meet him, he is literally a Nazi. Like he's presented to us as a Nazi. Yeah. So and he and he's an abusive husband, subtly, but it's never quite cleared up whether this is whether he is or he isn't, and he's cheating on her in this particularly unpleasant way where he punches his girlfriend in the face for saying the wrong thing when he's drunk. Um, so he's he's a loathsome character. So so it is true that if she has loved Tom, that devalues her love to a considerable degree and makes her a different kind of person. And we do understand more about her in that moment when she when she reveals that in fact he is the love of her life. Yeah, the the thing is that Gatsby also has a lot of the same qualities as Tom. Yes, yeah. And that's why Nick's somewhat or definitely gay admiration for Gatsby makes him an interestingly unreliable narrator. Because Gatsby is also violent and, you know, cheats on people or whatever. Like, it, Gatsby... I don't think that we hear Gatsby saying loud racist things, but I don't think that we don't hear him saying loud racist things either. Yeah. And there's, there's actually a, a really peculiar racist moment from Nick when they're driving, he and Gatsby are driving into New York and they see, I think it's a limousine full of black people driving next to them. Yeah. Yeah. And 
burst into laughter at how absurd it is to see rich black people. It's really bizarre uh, and jarring. Um, so, so it's there all the time. And, and there it's really unclear whether we're dealing with an unreliable narrator or an unreliable author. It's, it's not a good moment. Um, Very much so. Yeah. And yeah, the the amount that hangs on the idea that nobody comes to Gatsby's funeral also feels like, um, uh, you know, it feels like anti-urbanism that I think crops up frequently in political discourse now also. Like you people in cities who hang out on the internet, you think you have friends, but you don't really have friends only Midwesterners really have friends. And if you have ever been to one of those Midwestern funerals where everyone from the church comes and you're not allowed to say anything true about the person who's died, you know what those friends are worth too. Just saying. Um, <laughs> I like the the lengths to which the book goes to say that the bonds between people like um, Gatsby, Gatsby and Wolfsheim are worth less than the money they're printed on. Mm. That that um, that they're corrupt people who have no real human feelings. But that Gatsby, for being a white Midwesterner, basically has infinite chances to be considered better than the better than everyone else. You know, mm-hmm. at least in in Nick Haraway's uh, eyes. I don't know that the book doesn't believe that. I know Nick believes it, but I don't know that the book doesn't, you know? Yeah. And then the last line that's so often quoted about being born into the past, I was like, what does that actually mean in context? Sounds good. But like, is this an actual thing? Is this profound? Yeah, it's sort of like his, the whole book is constructed around an empty idea as it's constructed around an empty character, the idea being nostalgia as, as the most beautiful thing in, in human nature, which is a, a position I think that nobody really holds. Yeah. Like, I don't think anybody actually organizes their life around the idea that they can relive the past. And I don't think that the main fact of American identity is that the past is preventing us from making progress into the future. In At least in the way that I don't think that this book is actually looking at any of the ways that that could be considered true. It's an interesting book because it's an interesting fact about the book because it's, you know, it's obviously at least one of the top three contenders for the great American novel, but it's presenting in America. Uh, America is notoriously in love with the idea of the future. And this is a book about a non-existent America that's in love with the past. Well, I think America is also very into um, scolding people for enjoying themselves too much. 
Yeah. You know, I think that that's a very strong theme in in certain American cultures also. But actually, uh, having said that, now I want to disagree with myself because I think it's, it's again, it's part of the unreliability of the book because the only the only really successful nostalgic person in the book is Tom, who actually manages to turn um, the garage on his premises into a stable, which he's very proud of. Like he's actually managing to turn the clock back because he's so successfully rich and and from the right family and from the right place. Um, so that's kind of framing the the nostalgic project as a as a class project in a different way. And obviously, like the good characters, I, he, I, I don't know. There's nothing obvious about it, actually. I take back the obviously. Yeah, I agree with you. That's that's good complexity there. I'm just thinking. The book doesn't describe what society looks like without um, multiculturalism and class. It's only saying that those things exist on the East Coast and are bad. Like I don't, I don't think that those are ambiguous. That it's bad that some people in this in this book that it's bad that some people are rich and some people are not rich among white people, and that it's also whatever bonds you think you have with somebody who's for the purposes of the book not white. Um, that those are meaningless and uh, corrupt. And also anybody who, if you cross those lines, you will die. Yeah. Like anybody who crosses those lines. Anybody in this book, it's like, it's sort of like passing. Anybody who has sex with somebody of the other class dies in this book. Yes. I think that the... Um... I think that the book has an implicit idea that in the on the frontier in the West, uh, there isn't there isn't the level of richness, there isn't the income inequality. There's no degree of richness that could make you truly rich, and there's no degree of um, poverty that could put you in like Myrtle's position. That everyone is closer to equal. That's really true, or if it's just that the mixing isn't happening, and so you're not forced to confront the differences that exist. Yeah, because he never comes out and says it. So it's 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 yeah. it's like the shadow society is the the society that Nick and Gatsby would belong to if Gatsby was still obeying that uh, little schedule that he has and um, that his father shows at the funeral. Mm-hmm that he has this schedule, like when he's supposed to get up and how all, all these things he's supposed to learn and his eager self-improvement uh, plans. And um, that that's supposed to show who Gatsby was before he had all of these corrupting forces and this impurity of the East Coast city and and the war to some extent and the idea of social mobility before the idea of social mobility touches him. It's just self-improvement. I think there's just these little hints of what that other American dream is in this book. The one that's, that's um, in the shadow and the, the negative space of this book is the idea of the West as better. Yeah. 
I want to say like this book, one of the things that strikes me about it every time I read it is that it's such a comprehensively angry book. Yeah. It doesn't give any of the characters in the book a moment of peace. Like what, the few moments when it turns and embraces Gatsby are, are really shocking and come across as false, partly because the entire book is so hostile and so unforgiving to its characters. And I think that is, that's interesting, not only in this book, but as a feature of what is considered literary fiction in the 20th century in general in America. And like to a much less degree in, in England, um, although like uh, there are other countries like beyond England has always been a weirdly cozy place for literary fiction. Certainly French literary fiction is also quite unforgiving. But but American American hostility has this particular kind of catty tone. Yeah, I, I I'm not I'm not totally ready to agree about um, the English ones because I do think that the Sherlock Holmes model of the, like that I was talking about earlier, where there's the two characters, I think that um, it does lend itself to a kind of archness. I actually wanted to say something about empty characters and say that um, this time it really struck me how much he left Daisy completely empty as a character and was so happy to pile symbolism on her. Like her voice sounds like money and she, all of her attractions come down to she's rich and uh, that the minute Gatsby kisses her. He's, you know, damned forever. <laughs> it's like he completely loses every good thing about him. It's like the um, Yoko broke up the Beatles theory of uh, Gatsby. And it's so nasty about Daisy. And there's actually, she has zero qualities other than that one comment she makes about having a child and finding out it's a girl and saying that she hopes that the baby is a fool, beautiful fool. Um, but it's also a little bit of an odd moment because she's trying to explain how unhappy she is to Nick, who is her cousin that she barely knows. She's like, this is how things have been for me lately. And she tells this kind of dramatic story about herself. But it, it, at least to me, it rang very false. It was a very weird thing to say. Like, here's the kind of thing I would do. I would, you know, it's not the same as actually having a scene where she's giving birth and muttering curses over her child, you know? Yes, yes. And it's, it's not really clear. It's an affectation as much as it is a confession. Exactly, exactly. So it doesn't it doesn't seem authentic. And it is, as far as I can tell, her most authentic moment of anything we know about her other than something that's completely framed by others, like she has to say if she's ever loved Tom or not. And it's like, well, what does it even mean? What would her life be like if she were equally beautiful, but more foolish? Would she be happier? Is there any evidence for that? <laughs> What does the beautiful fool line even mean? Yes, it's, I mean, she's supposed to be 
she, I mean, it's as you say, she's really a symbol rather than a person. So she stands for, I guess, the the original sin of the ruling classes of of using people who are poor and pretending to love them but not truly loving them. I guess it's that it's that thing of not turning up at Gatsby's funeral, the the emotional emptiness of the ruling classes and their endless self-presentation as this or that, which I think is very well represented in Daisy. She's very she's very convincing minute to minute. She feels like a real person who we've encountered in the world before. She just doesn't have an inside. Yeah. Yeah, the the carelessness. Um the, the carelessness line, I think that seemed very true. I'm just thinking. Yeah, so okay, I guess that that um that links to another side of this book, which is that a lot of the writing I thought was so beautiful and so elegant, it just felt like uh taking off seven winter coats and just wearing a slip. Mm. Um, it just seemed so memorable and quotable the way I think that, you know, one of the reasons that this book lives in the imagination so easily is even if these lines don't necessarily mean anything, they do stay with you. And I think that the way that he describes Daisy's posture with her, the angle of her chin and her shoulders and that uh, all of that was so precise. It almost didn't matter that she was so overloaded with symbolism and under defined with any other characteristic. You know, like I think a lot of books would collapse under that with so few like really plausible characters. And I think the, um, the thing that, that counterbalances it is the quality of the writing. The quality, it, I mean, it's interesting because I, I didn't find the characters exactly implausible. I just found them superficial. So they're, and that is partly because of the the framing from Nick's point of view, who doesn't know any of them intimately. So it's justifiable that they're seen superficially and never really understood and that we don't understand the motivations that they have for all of the things that they do. Um, oh, yeah, I I want to be precise that I don't think that people like Daisy don't exist. I just think that she's not written in a way that she's comprehensible as a person. And then yeah. she has so many symbols associated with her. And that seems sexist and dehumanizing to, to say, yeah. like, well, this woman and her love are the symbols of a thousand different things. But then what kind of person is she like? Gee, I don't know. I forgot to ask. That was not interesting. I should also say that it's going to be interesting to see what's ha- going to happen now that Gatsby is out of copyright with people writing new versions of it, because there is a story to be told in which Daisy is an abused wife whose husband is a Nazi who's cheating on her and terrorizes her. And then this man comes back into her life who stalks her relentlessly, <laughs> who actually oh. has constructed his life around stalking her. And she falls for it because she's having a weak moment and, and et cetera, if you, if you see what I mean. Well, or that she thinks that 
he is somebody that could help her escape her abusive husband, but it turns out that he's the scary stalker. And she thinks like, oh, maybe my cousin can help me. I can tell my cousin how unhappy I've been. And the cousin is just like, yeah, sure, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> Beautiful, cool. Got it. Uh, like in some ways that confession, you know, that we just said, it, it doesn't sound like a confession. It sounds staged in a way. Uh you know, that maybe like, maybe there is a way to rewrite this where that's her attempt to get help from, from Nick. And obviously Nick is just not able to feel curious about her as a person. Yeah. There's a, there's a way she could be seen as, as somebody in an abusive relationship or two abusive relationships, who's just begging somebody to read between the lines. Yeah. Yeah. And the uh, like Gatsby's decision to uh, pretend that he was the one driving the car, not her, when um, when Myrtle was killed. Like nobody really sees her as a person who could have responsibility. Like she's so busy, you know, from Nick's perspective, she's just being the symbol of money. This is what money does. Money mows people down in the street not a person who could have moral responsibility for how they act or how they drive or whether they do a hit and run or whether they stop the car. Or who could have deliberately killed their husband's girlfriend. Also true. Yeah. Yeah. That's not really dealt with in the book that, you know, exactly. That, that it, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I interrupted you. Can you say it again? Possibly she stepped on the gas at the crucial moment. Yeah. Uh, completely agree. It, it there's a lot of there's a lot of room there, including like her not attending Gatsby's funeral. That if she has an abusive husband, of course she's not going to go to her boyfriend's funeral. Yeah, and and if she sees him as just another aspect of men betraying her and. And treating her, treating her as a symbol, like really, really, yeah. she's treated as a symbol by all of the men in her life, um, and none of them can see that she's de- desperate. So um, did she go to his funeral? Yes. <laughs> um, the the idea that she also is a symbol of the unchanging past when she has fallen in love and married and had a child since she last saw Gatsby, all of those things are seen as a betrayal. All of those things are seen as kind of a reduction in her like spiritual virginity. I don't know. It sucks. I hope she gets her own car. I hope she takes a a road trip or something. And while we're, while we're here, let's, let's spare a moment for Myrtle. (laughs) Yes. Oh my goodness. Um, Brittle of the single adjective. <laughs> She's like always like, oh, her vitality. Sorry, maybe that's that's enough. <laughs> um, the treatment of Myrtle and of everyone in Myrtle's orbit is so shocking. Um, and a thing that's interesting about it is that if we read Nick Carraway as having had a kind of one night stand with the photographer, I'm not sure if he's ever given a name. McKee. Yeah, McKee then he's done the same thing to that guy in a sense that the, he's using 
him sexually and treating him as a as a non-person in a similar way to what is happening with the people he sees as rich. Yeah. And I find that the whole, the, the way that the narrative treats it is absurd that a person of that class should have any artistic aspirations is particularly painful. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, the book definitely is critiquing the idea of class while also heavily buying into it, which I guess that's kind of like, um, like the white Lotus, mm. you know, that TV show. Did you ever watch it? Yeah, I, I did watch it. Yeah. Okay. I just, I think that we still have these uh, texts that are there to critique the idea of class while also um, just being fundamentally much more interested in what rich people are doing. Yeah. We, we still don't have the black Lotus, you know, who are really just completely seeing everything from the point of view of the, of the person, I mean, this is the thing that I've always said um, when I teach The Great Gatsby is that the point of view character is upper middle class and white. And that is, that is fiction. Like that, uh, we don't see it from the richest person. The, the standard for fiction, for literary fiction, is that the point of view can't be the richest person and can't be a poorer person but is middle class and sees themselves as middle class. And generally they're an upper middle class person who sees themselves as middle class, if you see what I mean. Definitely. Yeah. And that's um, what we this book. And that's one of the reasons that, again, it's not just a great novel of American fiction, but the great American novel is because it does these very conventional things in these ways that can be opened up. Yeah. It's true that if you were to put the point of view character it's like the uh, Nick is the person who has the least at stake. So it's fine that he's the one who's watching because that's, um, you know, equivalent to like Watson telling the story of Sherlock Holmes solving the mystery. Um, but if you had anyone other than Gatsby being the main character, the story would go from American tragedy to just massacre. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I guess unless it's Tom, but for Tom, it would just be like Tuesday. I don't know. Like, it doesn't seem like anything actually touches him really. Yeah. It's, it's sort of, there's a, there's just a set point for how, for the age of the main, of the point of view character for the, social standing of the point of view character and for exactly how morally ambiguous they can be. And that is the set point for the conventional literary novel, which to some degree is already true at the time of Gatsby, but to some degree is like really strongly reinforced by Gatsby and a lot of other books of the time. Yeah, I, I was thinking about how many of the features of this book are new things like the swimming pool, the chlorinated swimming pool, and the cars, and the angle of the chins of the women, and their tennis dresses and stuff like that. Um, I wonder if my feeling that uh, nostalgia and recreating the past are 
just very weird focuses for this book. I wonder if it's it's specifically talking about people talking about World War One. If they're specifically saying so much of society changed so quickly, so recently, we are out of control. This has to end badly. Like maybe they actually did encounter nostalgia differently than I do. Yeah, it's interesting that, I don't know, I think that there are obviously historical events that are in the DNA of every piece of art created when they were going on or after they were going on, like World War One. Yeah. This book manages to kind of squish World War One out of consciousness in a way that makes it come back everywhere in a really interesting way. Um, and one thing that I, I really have to get in my thing about The Great Gatsby being a monster movie and I think <laughs> for anyone who didn't listen to our checkoff episode, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Like always, like always have to say this. So, so like my why why the Great Gatsby is a monster movie is because first we keep hearing about the Gatsby, but we only get brief glimpses of him. Like everybody's talking about the Gatsby. Then we start meeting the Gatsby up close, and each time we learn some scary new feature of the Gatsby, and then the Gatsby begins to claim victims. And at last it's killed in a surprising way. So that's why The Great Gatsby is a monster movie. And I always think specifically of Godzilla. And I think that's partly like Godzilla is like the figure of the atomic bomb. And Gatsby is in a way the figure of, of World War One and the consequences of World War One on the class system and on the on the and the the nihilism produced by World War One as well as like other features. It's kind of all of the possibilities and changes that came out of that expressed in a character who seems innocent, but turns out to be deadly. Yeah. And that it could only feel satisfying if he's punished, which is yeah. kind of like back to my, back to my original question, which is like, what is the mystery that the Sherlock Holmes slash Watson duo are trying to solve here. And it's kind of like, we know Gatsby must be punished, but for what? But it's also, it's a whodunit because we don't, we don't know what the crime will be initially and we don't know who's to blame, but at the end, it's obviously Tom and Daisy who are to blame, who are seen like kind of conniving in the shadows. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But even of those, I would say Daisy is most to blame because Tom is just kind of a, a the book conceives of him as like a wind up toy who's just set to go in a certain direction and he's just gonna keep clapping his Nazi symbols and you know chittering. But uh, that Daisy, in theory, could have chosen Gatsby or could have been somehow other than what she was, less corrupt by money. And again, maybe because of, you know, maybe that's the um, the Midwesternness that's implicit in her character. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, certainly the fact that Tom is a Nazi doesn't seem to be that shocking or important to Fitzgerald. It's just part of his concept of people of that class. Which is also something in uh, Woodhouse. Like that's, another, you know, they, they run into... Um, Nazis and Jeeves and Worcester also. This I did not know. 
Wait, really? Yeah. Oh, they're um well, it's kind of it's kind of played as a joke because like they don't really know where any of this is going. And then Woodhouse himself is not totally innocent once it really starts going. And obviously Mitfords don't come out of that clean either. Some of them. Some of them, yeah. Anyway, I mean, I, I definitely don't think that everyone in 1925 has to know. I, <laughs> I'm willing to be generous. Not everyone in 1925 has to know what's going to happen in the next couple decades. Oh, yeah. No, I, I'm not. I'm not blaming Fitzgerald for not knowing what's going to happen in the next few decades. I think that it's it's much more that I see him as being like unusually willing to be honest about the loathsomeness of the people whose class he wants to join. All right, that was our episode on The Great Gatsby. Thank you to Adam Bear for our music and to the people at Literary Hub for hosting us. We love hearing from listeners, so please rate and review us at Apple Podcasts, tweet us at LitCenturyPod, or email us at litcenturypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, and goodbye till next week. <laughs>